Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey Ben, it's Aaron. Hey Aaron, it's Ben. So Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting then that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who just finished a bowl of vanilla ice cream. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop, emphasis scoop, on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. So Ben, I uh, hope the ice cream was pretty good. Kind of jealous, honestly. Um, but um, we'll, um, we'll transition from ice cream to coffee. So this is episode 25, and when I think of the number 25, Ben... Um, yeah, above any sport, above anything, what comes to mind first for me is a driver of the number 25 Folger Chevrolet Monte Carlo, the late, great Tim Richmond, uh, one of my favorite drivers of all time. Never got a chance to meet him, unfortunately passed just before my second birthday, but I've watched a lot of his old races, his interviews. I did a long story on him for Speed Sport Magazine about seven years ago, six, seven years ago. Um, so big Tim Richmond fan for me personally, just a, a, one of the greatest drivers in NASCAR, not to get their due for what they accomplished. Um, but Ben, I mean, his the height of his NASCAR career was um, early in your tenure as a NASCAR journalist. So um, we've touched on Richmond a little bit before in this podcast, but you know it's episode twenty-five. So what the hell? Let's let's delve deeper into the Tim Richmond story a little bit. Um, you, you've you've probably seen some of the races. Did you cover any of the races that he won that you recall? Yes, I, I did. And, and I tell you what, I, I knew Tim personally not not well enough to go, you know, have dinner and that kind of thing. But we did know each other. And uh, I was I was relatively early in my career when he was uh, at the height of his career. I was actually in my third season as a journalist in, in 1986 when he was really doing well with with Hendrick Motorsports uh, driving the number 25 car. He had driven uh, for J.D. Stacy uh, coming into the Cup Series, and then uh, Raymond Beetle was another one of his team owners yep. uh, in, the, in the Cup Series. And, of course, he got picked up by uh, Rick Hendrick. And we've touched on this in other shows that he was actually uh, one of Rick Hendrick's uh, main drivers that he wanted to start Hendrick Motorsports and, and Tim just couldn't make up his mind that he wanted to drive for 
the quote upstart Rick Hendrick team because he was afraid he wasn't going to be a success. If you could imagine that a lot of people, and, I feel like probably had that concern. Um, and plus Tim was, you know, the team he was with, if you recall, Ben Raymond Beetle and blue max racing, he drove a, uh, a red, uh, uh, almost a candy apple red number 27, old Milwaukee car and they had some success I mean they really that team kind of gave Tim Richmond his opportunity to show how good he was on road courses but you know they weren't they weren't championship caliber and Mm -hmm. uh, eventually you know within a few years Tim Richmond figured that out and uh, in the midst of Hendrick Motorsports second season in 1985 signed the deal to drive for them in 86 Uh, but you know the funny bit of trivia Ben um, that's notable about Hendrick in 1985 Okay, first of all, it's the last year they were a one-car team in the Cup Series. But it's also the only time, the only season in the history of Hendrick Motorsports where they went winless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's true. And, and you know, it, one of the I, I touched on this a minute ago, the fact that so many people, and you did too, some people didn't think Hendrick Motorsports was going to survive. One of those people that didn't, didn't think it was going to survive was Rick Hendrick himself. Yeah. Because he talked about how, you know, if we didn't get this act together, he, we were going to fold uh, the team and close the doors. And he went to Daytona in 1984, and, and he said his car ran so bad, that number five car with Jeff Bodine, who basically hung around the dealership yeah. all day. Until finally he said, okay, Jeff, you can have the ride because Tim just, just won't call me back. And so the contract he has in his hand is not going to get signed, and the one you have in your hand basically will. And so he goes to Daytona in 1984. He said his car, that five cars running so bad, he said he just got sick to his stomach, went back to the hotel, and Rick did. <laughs> and, That's probably the last time that happened for him at Daytona. Yeah, yeah for sure. And and he said, I just, it's like, what have I gotten myself into? You know, I don't have the money to run with these guys, and I don't have the equipment. And we've got two cars in a boat shed back there. Hendrick Motorsports, by the way, and the boat shed is still standing, and it's one of the smaller buildings. I mean, the smallest building on the complex. I need to go check now. that out. Yeah, because I, yeah, I I wouldn't know it if I saw it. You'd have to probably point it out to me. Yeah, it is still there. It's right up there on the hill, and it's that's the original building where the the two cars were uh, built by Harry Hyde and. The uh, they and they had to clean the thing out because they had a bunch of boats in there. That's what Harry had some boat equipment and stuff yeah. in, so they had to clean all that mess out and and put the cars in there. But th- that's the true story. And and Tim just couldn't make up his mind. Do I want to go with this upstart team? Because I'm really scared it's not going to work. And as it turned out, yeah, it worked all right. They've got more wins than any other team, but just surpassed uh, Petty Enterprises uh, this year. Yeah, I think they're what are they at two seventy now? I lost count, oh, but uh, I don't know. I, I just yeah. generally tend to think it's about three hundred because it will be sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I tell you what, they have just—it's phenomenal what they have accomplished with so many drivers. But but Tim was one of those early guys that I did know uh, and, and got along great with him. And I'll tell you what the thing was about Tim: if if you were a journalist and get out there and hustled for a story and you really worked for it, he had a lot of respect for you. If he was, if you were one of those guys that stayed back in the in the media center and waited on the pit notes and didn't really try and didn't really hustle, he didn't care much for you. And but, but he was just one of those guys that he and I got along super good together. I don't really know why. We just kind of hit it off. And and I just, I liked him from a personal level. He was very charismatic and extremely funny. And just one of those guys that, I'll be honest, that people just kind of gravitated to. And, 
a nice looking guy and just, you know, the sponsors loved him immediately, but he was one of those guys that Rick Hendrick himself have, has told me that, you know, they would have these corporate sponsor meetings and, and they were just really nervous and he would be patting his foot and shaking his knee under the table wondering, is Tim going to show up for this? Right? Because he was one of those types that he might stay up all night in some party somewhere and you just didn't know how he was going to present himself the next day. And But normally he'd show up in a nice suit and yeah. well-groomed and he would be on top of his game, but he would... You know, very, and again, he would impress the, the the CEOs of these companies that they were trying to impress to get sponsorship. But yeah, he just didn't know how Tim would do it. And, and many a time, no no disrespect, I guess, to Tim, but he would be driving the car with one hand, with his right hand and holding his head with his left. But he did it better. On. Yeah, he did it better than about anybody else. And Ben, you you bring up the the point about meeting with the sponsors and all, uh, some of my favorite Tim Richmond stories, uh, it's, I've be, I've, I've read so many, I've, I've written some, I've told them, I've had them told to me by, you know, his sister, Sandy, by Rick Hendrick himself, by Daryl Waltrip, by, uh, people who covered him like yourself and Deb Williams, long time of the Winston cup scene and a, a mutual friend of ours. So many people that I, I can't recall who told me these stories first, but, uh, one of my favorites was that media tour one year. I guess it was 86. Um, could have been 87. But uh, Tim Richmond was in the... Uh, he had disappeared, and he'd gone into the kitchen at media tour, the Charlotte Motor Theater media tour. And uh, he came out, and he had two giant coffee cups, like huge coffee cups, like props in a movie, not the kind you drank out of. And mm-hmm. he said, all right, boys, I got leaded and I got unleaded. And... <laughs> He apparently mm-hmm. put liquor in one of these big coffee <laughs> containers and yeah. um, decided to serve both of them. Uh, another one, uh, Tim Richmond apparently was meeting with Jimmy Johnson. This is not the Jimmy Johnson of NASCAR fame, seven-time Cup Series champion, IndyCar Series rookie. Uh, this is Jimmy Johnson, the uh, former general manager of Hendrick Motorsports. So this Jimmy Johnson and Rick Hendrick and Tim Richmond were supposed to go to a meeting with the executives at, uh, at Folgers. And so they get there, and Tim Richmond um, is running late, uh, as you said. He, you know, Ben, you said that that you know sometimes Tim Richmond would stay up all night at the party. I feel like it's probably sometimes he wouldn't stay up all night at the yeah, party. And most of the time he did. Yeah, um, right. So he, so Tim Richmond shows up, and he had a uh, <laughs> he had on a t-shirt uh, with a phrase I can't repeat. And like a um, like this big leather coat, and uh, he just sat down, um, kicked his feet up on the table, and was like, "If that Folgers coffee can wake me up, it can wake anybody up." And they just <laughs> loved it. They ate it up, yeah. and he was you know twenty yeah. thirty minutes late, probably maybe more. Um, yeah. But they got him to the meeting. Uh, there's another story, a little less family friendly, about him having him stop with it. Might have been with Jimmy Johnson. I think I read this in the late David Poole's book um, that he made him stop. Um, they basically drove the car down an embankment on the interstate because he saw a topless coffee shop and he had mm-hmm. to try it out. Um, cause oh, Tim yeah. Richmond loved the ladies and he liked to party every now and then. Um, but, uh, you know, and I've written that Tim Richmond was kind of a NASCAR's biggest symbol for excess in the 1980s, both good and bad. But what I want to focus on today is the excess amount of success he had in the cup series. Um, and and what's funny, Ben, is that you know people talk about that magical '86 season and what could have been in '87. 
Were he healthy enough to run the entire season? Would Dale Earnhardt have won the championship? Yeah, probably. Would he have won? And would Bill Elliott have won in '88? That's questionable because Tim Richmond was really, really, you know, he had, he and Harry Hyde had really figured it out, and they were becoming a tough out at every kind of racetrack. But, um, you know, they struggled really bad. They kind of sucked the first half of that '86 season, Ben, and it wasn't until Charlotte. He won the Bush Series race, later known as the Nationwide Series, later known as the Xfinity Series. Uh, he won the Bush race at Charlotte, and then he uh, finished second in the 600 to Earnhardt, and then suddenly they were they, they, they got hot. And he mm-hmm. wound up winning uh, more races than any other driver in the Cup Series in 86, finished third in the standings, almost eked out Daryl Walchip for second in points, and it seemed like the sky was the limit for this guy. He had, um, you know, you you touched on it, Ben. He had, you know, movie star looks. He had a, a Hollywood personality. People gravitated toward him because he was so quotable. He's probably the only person in the history of Charlotte Motor Speedway to call a emergency press conference because he had taken exception to something that Dick Beatty and NASCAR's brass had, had said or done to him. Another Deb Williams story. Deb was probably sitting front row. You probably were, too. Yeah, um, probably was. I yeah. remember, but I probably was, yeah. Yeah, and, and so this guy just, I mean, it, it, we like to compare on here, because in a lot of cases you can compare a current driver to an old school driver. You know, that's a lot of NASCAR fans like to do that, right? But I don't think there ever was and ever will be again anybody like Tim Richmond. And that even is extended to the ARCA driver who's named Tim Richmond. Um, and my fanhood of Tim Richmond, so I was driving to mid Ohio a few weeks ago to go to the IndyCar race. Um, you, you, in, in driving there, you pass a sign that says Ashland, Ohio. And I like took a picture of it on my phone cause that's Tim Richmond's hometown. Um, and even though he's been dead for almost 22, 23 years now, uh, 22 years, I think it'll be 22 years in September. So we're really coming up on that or I'm sorry, 22 years, 32 years, Ben, pardon my lack of math skills. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, he, Tim Richmond, as long as he's been gone, is still very much uh, a popular staple in the, the world of NASCAR fandom. And I think he always will be because he just had that winning personality and he could do things in a race car that very few others could do. And there have been a lot of people from back in the day said that there was nothing more fun to watch and Tim Richmond flinging that 25 car through the S's at Riverside. Yeah, well, that's true. And, you know, there's a couple of things that come to mind to me, for me, about Tim. Uh, first, it, it's this. And, of course, the scene in the Days of Thunder movie when Robert Duvall and Tim Cru- uh, Tom Cruise are talking about, you know, you here you do 50 laps on the tires this way and you do 50 laps your way. Uh, and we'll see how things go. That really did happen with uh, Harry Hyde and Tim Richmond. And I mean, the way that Tim was doing, he was blistering the tires all over the place. And Harry uh, tried to keep telling him, if you'll do it my way, you're not going to have that problem. And that was sort of like the breakthrough that you're talking about, how they finally connected. I mean, you talk about crusty old Harry Hyde and wide open to the limits, Tim Richmond. You couldn't ask for two more different people than those two guys from two different eras of not only racing but of life, and and Rick Hendrick put them together, and they were just beating heads and locking horns for for months and months until finally they finally clicked, 
and it was a, a marriage that just wasn't working and very definitely headed for divorce. And all of a sudden they finally clicked and clicked and clicked and they started winning and started doing well with each other. And uh, of course, the second thing that comes to mind, I'll never forget how he went to Pocono, I believe in 87, and they had a transmission problem in the car. And Tim basically backed all the way down pit road uh, in the car and they did a pit stop backward in the car and they changed the tires and they crawled under and inside the car and got the transmission fixed and then he went on and won the race that day he was phenomenal at places like pocono and and on the of course the the riverside international raceway and and some road courses just an incredible driver and and you sort of wonder i think that's where that mystique comes in you wonder about how good he could have been had he not become sick and and yeah he would have I'm absolutely 100% certain that had he not become ill, he could have won some championships in the Cup Series and and many, many races and probably could have stayed with Hendrick Motorsports the same way, say, Jeff Gordon did and really had a a tremendous career there. Sadly, we lost him way too early in the game, but just a tremendous personality, tremendous driver on the racetrack and just had something very, very special behind the wheel for sure. Yeah, just a... Uh, like you said, Ben, Tim Richmond was just, he was incredible inside and outside of the race car. and dude had a great personality. If you guys uh, want to read more about Tim Richmond or learn more about him, uh, ESPN did an awesome 30 for 30 about him in 2010 that I just ate up like it was a buffet. It was so awesome. And uh, any opportunity that you have to, to read or learn about Tim Richmond's story is, is one that's worth uh worth going into but ben he wasn't the last guy to drive the number 25 folgers car and no that's true yeah and the uh the person who replaced him in uh in 1988 tim richmond retired from nascar uh he bowed out and rick hendrick needed somebody to drive the 25 folgers car one of the hottest rides in the cup series and he hired uh an upstart um failed indy car attempt a guy who failed to qualify for the Indianapolis 500 and had really impressed driving for Junie Donlevy the year before named Kenny Schrader. And so Schrader took over that ride in 88 and promptly won his first race at Talladega and won all four races in his cup series career aboard that number 25 Chevy owned by Rick Hendrick. But it was a long time. My gosh, it was uh, 16 years um, after that, after, Schrader's last win in 91 at Dover, 16 years later, finally the 25 car. Um, well, I'll take that back. No, the 25 won once with uh, Jerry Nadeau, Ben. That's right. Nine years later, they won with Jerry Nadeau. And then eight years after that, then Casey Mears bagged them another win, the 25 car, which is the most recent win by that car number in the Cup Series, the 2007 Coca-Cola 600 won by Casey Mears. So, yeah. And, and, and I think it's – excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you, there, but I think it's interesting – that the, the number really hasn't done well at all uh, since Tim Richmond won so many times in, the, in 86 and a couple of times in 87. And then it just kind of hasn't done well since then. I mean, yeah, there's been some wins, like you said, with Schrader and, and, and Mears and Jerry Nadeau, but it just hasn't really picked up and, and won multiple times, you know, during a season. But I want to throw this out there to you, by the way. I want to, I'm just, I'm really proud of this. There's a guy named Jack White who won the very first time in the NASCAR competition on September 18th, 1949. Okay. And he won at Hamburg, New York, driving in Lincoln. 
and he was the first guy to win in number 25. Now, here's the question. Is he related to me? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have said no I just because he's from I, Hamburg, New York. But And I would say no also. <laughs> yeah, we're, we don't know where but, he's from. But, um, but yeah, if he wasn't from North Carolina, then I would have said no. If he was from North Carolina, hey, I might have guessed yeah. He has the last name White, so... Hey, there you go. He's got to be some like twelfth cousin twice removed, eighteenth times removed. But hey, he is he is Jack White, and he is the first time winner in the number twenty five car. So hey, let's kudos to Mister White. Yeah, you've had a lot. You've had quite a bit of success between him and your uncle Rex, um, and and the Cup <laughs> yeah. Series. See, for me, uh, it's uh, been hey. a while. The last uh, the last driver with the last name Burns to enter a Cup race was Ron Burns. Uh, he ran in the um, the Motegi cup race in 1998 uh driving number 26 cars the last time he so, failed to qualify at vegas so it's been 23 years that somebody with the last name burns attempted uh to run a cup race and uh well, somebody needs to somebody needs to do something about that there's jeremy burns who's run the uh, what we call now the arca menard series east um but hasn't progressed to the top three series so there's been a bit of a dry spell uh for the last name burns in the cup series but you know Maybe it maybe hey, it'll change. Just just the fact that someone has, man, that's what counts. That's right. I'd be pissed if they hadn't. Believe me, when when Racing Reference, when I first discovered Racing Reference, many 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 moons ago, that was one of the first things I searched. Was all right. There had to be somebody. Come on now, give yeah. me somebody. And yeah. Ron Burns is the most recent. He's just two A's off of having the same name as me, um, but. He got to race against Dale Earnhardt and Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Jeff Gordon and Daryl Waltrip and so all those legends, go. which is pretty badass. So, so there you but he go. didn't drive the 25 Man. car. He drove a 26 car. So maybe we'll dedicate episode 26 to Ron Burns. You know? There you go. We should do it. We should do it now. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, and, and that's, uh, hey, you never know. Um, just like you said, Ben, anybody with that name, um, you know, gives me an opportunity to uh, to talk NASCAR and talk about somebody with the same last name as me. And sure. speaking of talking NASCAR, Ben, um, Noah talks NASCAR. It is one of the, uh, it's, I guess you could say it's our sister podcast, one of our sister podcasts on the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. Our man Noah Cornelius interviews folks from around the NASCAR community about their journey from drivers to musicians. You guys ought to follow at Noah C. Cornelius. That's like Cornelius is in Cornelius, North Carolina, on Twitter, so you never miss a show. That's Noah Talks NASCAR part of the Out of the Groove podcast network, along with a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast with yours truly and Ben White, and the NASCAR Weekly podcast, which is live every Wednesday, and it features your favorite NASCAR YouTubers discussing all the hot storylines of the week. You ought to subscribe to the Iceberg, Danny B Talks, Black Flags Matter, and Eric Estep on YouTube to never miss a show. Uh, but yeah, and, and again, kudos to Eric for helping us out a couple times um, when I have been out of town at other races certainly appreciate his help but eric's one of the foremost experts on the on on modern nascar and it's always good to hear his take because he in many ways ben i think he represents a huge sect of the nascar fan base and um you know and and he presents his opinions in a great way where people can relate to him Um, and i really enjoyed really enjoyed working with him on that yeah and and, you know he's he like i said he's the the dude's an expert with everything modern nascar um and and you need that you know you need that kind of friend who can tell you everything that's going on and and probably prognosticate some of the things that's my 50 cent word of the day prognosticate some things um you know and, and tell you what might happen next year um but for the next topic that i wanted to bring up Ben, it's uh 
we're not we we don't have to prognosticate. We can just um, we can just come up with a, an idea. There's been you know discussion um, of you know how good a job is. Uh, is NASCAR's brass doing right now? Well, I think they're doing a pretty good job. You know, they, they, they've been very, uh, they, they've been very open to listening to, to NASCAR fans, and I think Steve Phelps has made himself very available to the NASCAR world, which is a great thing as as the as the uh, sports president. But um, we're gonna throw that out, and we're gonna we're gonna play some hypotheticals, Ben. Mm-hmm. If you had to vote anybody for NASCAR president, who would you vote for? You can't vote for yourself. <laughs> Wow, you know what? There is nothing, nothing like throwing me under the bus. You want me to start? I'll start. You start. All right. You all start, right. and I will think. All right. Hard. Um. And again, all respect to Steve Phelps. I saw him a couple weeks ago. Steve is a super nice guy, and his his vision for NASCAR, I think, uh, is is one that that will lead to a lot of success. Um, but for the sake of argument, we, we want to, you know, we want to play this, play this role and see who we'd vote for. I'll tell you who I'd vote for. And it's, it's going to come as a huge surprise to you, Ben. This kid is not any surprise at all. It's, uh, somebody who a lot of people talk about on Twitter should be NASCAR's president. And that's Dale Earnhardt Jr. Um, you know, the fact that he has such an amount of sway in the NASCAR community that something can be announced, anything, you can roll out anything. And people be like, I don't really like that. And then Dale Jr. will get on Twitter and say, I think this is really cool. And instantly, Ben, instantly, hundreds of thousands of opinions change. He has pull like nobody else in the industry. He knows he has that kind of pull. And he uses it to his advantage in a productive manner. Um, you know, and he's one of the nicest people I've ever met in the sport. Absolutely here to myself and a lot of people. But I, I think that... Um, It'd be real interesting to see what are some of the changes that a Dale Earnhardt Jr. led NASCAR would have, because um, I know he and Marcus have talked. This Marcus Smith of Speedo Motorsports, I know they've talked a lot about what they, you know, what their singular vision might be for North Wilkesboro Speedway, and it's a track that's certainly special to you and I, Ben. I mean, it's the first racetrack I ever yeah. went to when I was three. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see him bring it back for sure. And I think that's, you know, I think President Dale Earnhardt Jr. of NASCAR probably would, that'd probably be pretty high up on his uh, his, his list of, of objectives. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what else he would do. Uh, if Since he's not still driving, I don't think he would run Talladega 10 times on the schedule, but <laughs> if he was, no, he probably no, would. he wouldn't do that. Yeah, no. but if he was still driving, he, you know, I think the whole playoff system would just be Talladega over and over again, and, you know, he'd, if uh, if he if he didn't get wrecked, he probably would go on a Jimmy Johnson mid-late 2000s-like run if, if they ran 10 playoff races at Talladega, because, you know, you can make an argument for Dale Earnhardt, you can make an argument for Jeff Gordon, you can make an argument for Brad Keselowski. Yeah. I, I think Dale I, Jr. is the best ever at Talladega. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you who I think I would I would vote for, and he probably, if he knew I said this, he would probably <laughs> send me a brick in the mail because he probably wouldn't want the job. Can I guess? Uh, yeah. All right, um, give me two guesses. So first, is it is it a driver, a car owner, or other? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, all right. So is he a driver? Uh, Active driver? No. Former driver, yes. Oh man, see, I was thinking you were gonna say Steve Wade. Now, now I got to think of a completely different. Oh no, 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 no. Uh, no, I, I, I'll, I don't know. I'll, I'll just tell you. I think my choice would would be Tony Stewart, and okay. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I think Tony would approach the job first and foremost 
with a with an incredible amount of common sense and no BS. Yeah. Okay. He would just say, "Look, here's the deal. First of all, he's a racer. All right. He he's been racing for a really long time. He is not only a former driver, but he's a team owner. All right. So he yeah. can look at it from a driver's viewpoint and what a driver would go through on the racetrack. He could also look at it from a from a team owner's viewpoint." as to what a team owner faces race to race year to year and all the crap that a driver i mean a, a, a well a driver and sure. a team owner has to face okay what i mean by that is okay you have a this is what we're going to do this is a rule change and we're going to keep this rule change in place so it's going to cost you a million bucks sorry but this is what's going to cost you all right so we get from february into june and then suddenly the sun rises and suddenly this rule change that we spent a million or more dollars on. Okay, we woke up today and we decided we don't want to do this rule change anymore. So now we're going to change this rule to a new rule and it's going to cost you another million bucks. And there's no rhyme or reason to it, but we're just going to do this. Well, I mean, that that has faced team owners for for many times. Sure. Okay? And, in all, and so, in all parts of racing, too. All parts of racing. So, you know, a lot of times decisions are made and sometimes, in my opinion, I don't think it's really taken into consideration as much as it should be that uh, what is it going to really cost uh, in the long run? And there's a lot of things. And I know NASCAR takes a lot of things into consideration. I'm not saying that they don't. But at the same time, there are costs involved and consequences involved when you make rule changes. So when so going back to my choice for president of NASCAR, I just think Tony would would approach things on a much uh, much more common sense look at things because <laughs> because he yeah. he is a he is a common sense person. Can you imagine he, Dale Jr. and Stewart running against each other for president of NASCAR and everybody had to vote? Oh gosh. That would well, be, I mean, that'd be you, close. Well, I don't know about that. If you, I mean, it, it, I think that would probably come down to a popularity contest more so than a common sense contest. Because a lot of elections do to that point, Ben. But I just, I don't know. I mean, I think you'd have people who would who would stump for Stewart, um, who are dirt racing fans and casual NASCAR fans, and then you'd have Junior Nation uh, going for Dale Junior. So be pretty interesting because I do think that it would you would see Ben I think the objectives would be pretty similar between Junior and Stewart but um and I still call him Junior I'm sorry I call him Dale when I talk to him but you know I spent elementary school middle school high school and college calling him Junior it's really hard to not call him Junior and um I think they would have different ways of accomplishing these goals just mm-hmm. like how you know I think the playoffs would be 10 races at Talladega if Dale Junior's president and they'd be all dirt races at Eldora if Stewart was president um, not really, but you know, if they could mm. get by with it, probably would be, uh, those, right. those are two different types of racing at which they excelled. But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's something to think about. Um, always good to, to kind of guess as to who might be a good fit for that. And honestly, I think both of them would be, um, because NASCAR is kind of getting ushered into a new era and nothing better than to discuss a new era than the new era of Atlanta motor speedway, because they are reconfiguring their racetrack and, um, you know, going to give it a different look, maybe make it faster, maybe make it more competitive. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have talked about what they're going to do at Atlanta Motor Speedway. 
Well, we're a lifetime in NASCAR, so we're going to talk about what Atlanta has already done at Atlanta Motor Speedway. In particular, the first time they did a reconfiguration, which was in 1997, Ben, um, you know, you were... Uh, you were at um, you were in the prime of your career at that point. Not to say you're still not, but you were in the prime of your career <laughs> yeah, as a journalist. You're right. I was a lot younger. I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I was a little bit younger in those days. I was, I was too. But um, you know, so what they did, Atlanta Motor Speedway. If you guys look it up, from its founding in the early '60s when it was built to the mid 1990s, it raced a lot like and looked pretty similar to um, Homestead, what Homestead Miami Speedway looks like now. And one of the reasons they reconfigured Homestead Miami to make it more banked and, and make it look like old Atlanta was, first of all, because it wasn't that good in its original configuration, um, but because NASCAR needed that kind of a layout. And Bruton Smith and um, the folks at Speedo Motorsports wanted to switch it up and make Atlanta faster. And God, did they ever. Um, when they paved this racetrack and reconfigured it to where the front stretch was the back stretch and the, front, and the old back stretch as the new front stretch, if you can stick with me here, had a dog leg similar to Charlotte Motor Speedway and Texas Motor Speedway. Jeff Bodine went out there and basically went the speed of a top fuel funny car um, the first time they qualified in this new layout. And it just really, you know, it kind of turned NASCAR on its ear. I think a lot of people were very surprised that they would do this. Um, but clearly it was always popular. Now you got people pining to, to go back to that. But, you know... They weren't afraid to change, Ben, and uh, there were people at the time that were awfully skeptical about it, but it sure worked out pretty good, didn't it? Yeah, it did, and the thing I remember about that particular change, first of all, I mean, it was it was designed to look like Charlotte and look like Texas, but of course it didn't drive like any one of those two racetracks. Yeah. It, it looked like it, but it didn't. But I had some very fond memories of the old Atlanta Motor Speedway. One of the things was how cool it was to have the pine trees right outside the turns. And I think that was so unique of the old Atlanta Motor Speedway, the way it was originally built. And that was that way until they uh, added the, the dogleg in the front, as, we, as you just talked about, and how they made the switch. And I kept telling Ed Clark, I said, look, this is the one thing that you need to keep, and he couldn't do it. But the one thing you need to keep was the old press box that was there at the at the original Atlanta Motor Speedway. Because think about it, you had all of those winners that, and what I mean by keeping the old press box was to make some type of museum or something out of it. Because all the winners that had accepted those championship trophies in that original press box, you had yeah, you know, Kowicki and you had uh, Earnhardt and you had. Well, Patty, and I mean, everything ended in Atlanta sure. for many, many years. And um, Gordon. I think it and still should, that, but that's I think they, they could. I do, too. And I yeah. think they could have somehow taken cranes or something in my dream world, and they could have moved that press box down, and they could have somehow made a museum or something out of that. Because think about what I'm saying. All of those oh, yeah. guys had, ta had won championships, and they had done press box interviews. And this is back in the days when and they did it at Darlington when they had a race winner that had come out of victory lane and they would have a police escort to bring them up to the uh to the to the press box yeah well they said this, they did the same thing in Atlanta but every championship interview was done in that press box and I thought how much how cool would that be when I mean, that was such a, a hallowed ground in that sure. area 
And I wish they could have somehow preserved that area, but they couldn't do it. But the one thing I do remember about that particular race weekend was Jeff Bodine turned to speed, pole speed on that track for the first time at over 197 miles an hour. Now think about what I'm saying here. That racetrack was not Talladega. It was not Daytona. It was 197 miles around that 1.5 mile speedway. And this was when the other intermediates were going about 180 to 185. This, yeah, this was 197. I mean, good Lord, that boy, he, he probably had to go to the dentist on Monday and get some fillings fixed. That was a fast, fast lap. He was going probably, racetrack. what, 210 on the backstretch? If, if you're averaging out to that? Yeah, probably. And you're, and this was new new pavement, new configuration. I mean, it was, it was mind-blowing that you could get that fast around that particular racetrack. And I, I couldn't, I thought it was a misprint on the, on the pylon, really. And everybody did too. They thought, okay, 187. Yeah. When they went back and checked it, it was 197 point and some change. I don't remember yeah. what the change was. But it was a Good big Lord. deal then. It was major. It was huge. To, now think about 197 on a 1.5 mile racetrack. That was big. Yeah. Very big. Yeah. And, and. Uh, there were so many classic finishes that probably the tops ones really for a lot of fans, 2000 Dale Earnhardt's penultimate win in a photo finish over Bobby Labonte. And then a year later, same race, Kevin Harvick, third start, uh, taking over mm-hmm. for Dale Earnhardt beats Jeff Gordon photo finish. Uh, but there were a lot of, you know, a lot of great races there. A lot of fun memories of, uh, of that particular layout at Atlanta motor speedway. And, you know, being something I discovered really kind of later on was that and I, I always kind of wondered, like, what was, was you know, when Bruton Smith and, and Speedway Motorsports, you know, acquire a racetrack, yeah, it's going to be Atlanta Motor Speedway. Was it always Atlanta Motor Speedway? Because that was what I kind of assumed when I was a kid, and I was wrong. Uh, it was it was originally, for about 30 years, it was AIR, Atlanta International mm-hmm. Raceway, right? which is a yeah. pretty interesting name. And they had some, some clever logos uh, back in the day. But, um, you know, that, that racetrack, its original layout, like we said, was very similar to Homestead, Miami, very banked, um, and it held more than NASCAR. You know, there were quite a few IndyCar races there in the late 70s and early to mid-80s, the IndyCar race there. They came back for, uh, from 98 to 2001, had a big old wreck in 2001 that was such a big crash that Casey Mears, who was in IndyCar at that time, I guess was just like, well, to hell with this, and moved to NASCAR. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's an awesome racetrack. It's one of my favorites on the circuit. It was a lot of yeah. fun to go back there and, and, and see the last race. I got a piece of the asphalt from the start finish line, um, that I, that I got to hang on to that, uh, that the, the, the fine folks in Atlanta were nice enough to say for me. So I do appreciate that. Um, yep. but, uh, yeah, you know, that, that place has got a, a lot of history and I'm excited to see the history that they'll make with this new layout, this new, um, this new configuration of sorts that they're going to have for next year. They're hard to work on it right now, and I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun to see well, how it how it shakes out. What do you think, Ben? Well, I, well, I hope so. And you know, I, I'm one of those that let's see how it goes, let's see how it works. And uh, but yeah, I mean, this racetrack has even it's, it's had some dark days in the early beginning. You know, like a lot of racetracks did, and went through some some bad financial times uh, again, yeah. like some other tracks did. Well, they were close to uh, shutting down the mid late '80s, weren't they? I, I'm not sure exactly the year, but there were some times I know in the early 70s, they had some some pretty bad financial problems 
in the AIR days, and they had to come back. I don't, I don't want to say the word bankruptcy, but sure. I think I'm, I'm not sure exactly if it actually went into bankruptcy, but there were some times where things just weren't good. But to, but to be fair to Atlanta, you know, Michigan International Raceway or Michigan Michigan International, I think that's what it was called then, that they went through some tough times. A lot of racetracks went through some tough times yeah. because there wasn't a lot of money in motorsports in those days. And, and for you guys and who so, didn't know, uh, to your point, Ben, this was at the time, 70s, 80s, really into the early 90s. I mean, you look at the, the tracks now in the Cup Series. Almost all of them are owned by Speedway Motorsports or by NASCAR, formerly known as ISC. Um, that wasn't the case back in the day. You had no. Penske owned a few tracks. Uh, Speedway Motorsports um, existed to own Charlotte Motor Speedway and Performance Racing Network. And so uh, all, most of the tracks, other than Daytona and uh, Talladega, owned by ISC, I mean, they were all owned by just like a few business people. Um, you know, the is it the um, H. Clay Earls family owned uh, owned um, Martin, on Martinsville, and then right. um, Enix Staley and his family owned North Wilkesboro. It was families owned all these racetracks, and so when they came into you know financial difficulties, it was either sell it and hope the new owner could rescue it, or that was that. And yeah. um, Atlanta came very close to that, and Bruton Smith uh, deserves a lot of credit for saving the racetrack because in a lot of ways he did. Um, by buying it in 1990, and um, and and turning it into the you know the the historic facility that that's really got an eye toward the future now, um, thanks to some vision from his son Marcus and Steve Swift and everybody at Speedway Motorsports. Um, but uh, enough of the shameless self promotion. <laughs> no matter how valid it may be, I do want to say though, Ben, that um, Atlanta is one of my favorite racetracks, and they've had a lot of uh, of cool races there. What's wild to me is I didn't end up going. I'd never been to Atlanta until I was 29. Um, and for, you know, growing up, you know, about five, six hours away, uh, we just never really made it out there to that one. Um, you know, you mm-hmm. had, you were 75 miles from Charlotte to the east and you were 75 miles from Bristol to the west. Um, but we, we didn't make it out to Atlanta. I never did till I was 29. I was already working at Charlotte Motor Speedway. So, um, it took me a while to get out there, but I do love that place. It is really cool. I'm excited to see what they do with it, Ben. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how drivers, um, will, you know, handle a super speedway type racing package on a one and a half mile track. Um, but I do think that once they give it a shot, they're going to really enjoy it. And I think the fans yeah. are going to love it from the start. And, you know, there were these same concerns. They're probably the same concerns in 97 when Jeff Bodine scorched the track that, you know, all they, you know, they ruined Atlanta and then they had a race there and everybody was like, God, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Well, we, like I say, let's see. Let's see how this goes. I, I hope and pray it all works out, and I hope that uh, you know the drivers will be able to adapt to it well. Uh, you know, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but we have to look back at when Texas Motor Speedway was built, and it, they had to go back and do some some work on the track after yeah. a year or two of that because it just you know the 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 way it was configured just didn't work as well as they hoped it would and they had to go back and do some work on it so hopefully that's not going to be the case with this new configuration in atlanta hopefully it's just like the the redesign of atlanta when it happened in 97 and it was well adhered to and the drivers loved it so let's let's hope it works out again this way but yeah uh but i think back on very quickly i think back on you know, uh, 1992, the the race when it was so the, the 
so great with, with Alan Kawicki and Hooters yeah. 500 with Bill Elliott. And gosh, there's so many great races on that old configuration. And, you know, it's it's a part of NASCAR history, but I guess we're going to see some new NASCAR history being made on this brand new facility, brand new racing surface. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm, I don't like to think too much about the 92 Hooters 500 because it pisses me off because I really would like to have seen Davey get that championship. Yeah, um, me too. And, and that's nothing against Alan Kawicki. Think the world of Alan no. Kawicki. I just, you know... There are some times in racing where you feel like the guy who didn't, who won the championship, didn't quite deserve it just as much as somebody else, and that was mm-hmm. one of those years in NASCAR. Um, but hey, you know that's why they race. You, well, you that's know, true. You're not guaranteed a title, and they no. knew that going into then that, that anything could happen, and it did. Um, but yeah, to your point, Ben, Atlanta Motor Speedway, fun place. Excited to see uh, what kind of show that they put on there in the near future. I think it's going to be pretty cool, but, um, so shifting gears to, uh, to, you know, we, we, we talked about shows, um, you know, NASCAR shows, Ben, do you have Netflix? I do not. Ben, man, come on now. I, we need to get you on Netflix. We need to get you on Hulu to get you on Twitter. Like there, there's, there needs to be a grassroots campaign. We need to talk to Eric about kind of launching this grassroots campaign to like get Ben into usher Ben into 2021. (laughs) I am into 21. I just don't have Netflix. I am. Hey, here's the deal, man. I am working all the time and I just don't have a lot of time to, to, uh, to watch movies. So sorry. I'm just, I'm chasing race cars all the time. And I, but I do watch old races. Do I get, do I, <laughs> I get do credit too. for that? So yeah, I need some. Sure. I need some credit. I'm all the time watching, you know, an old NASCAR races. So there you go. But I'm working a lot. So yeah, and I mean, I think, um, you know, Netflix has really, since they got into the Formula One Drive to Survive documentary in the last few years, and um, kind of jump started F1's popularity in the United States, and created a lot of casual F1 fans. Um, for better or worse, me being a longtime Formula One fan, you know, kind of annoys me a little bit. But it's also nice you can talk F1 to people and they don't think that you're speaking Mandarin Chinese. So from that aspect of it, Netflix can can really boost a, um, boost the knowledge of a racing series. And NASCAR has jumped in head first, Ben, on the Netflix game this year. They had the show with Kevin James called The Crew. I watched every, se- uh, every episode of that. Uh, Kevin James is pretty funny. Honestly, I thought that's probably some of his best work aside from King of Queens. So that was neat. But now they're getting in a docuseries as well. Um, they, got, they announced in April they're going to do one with uh, Bubba Wallace. Um, I think they got another one planned as well. So, you know, I think Netflix and what it's doing is, um, you know, they NASCAR realized the benefit, Ben, of doing things like this from how much it helped F1. And I think it's probably going to help NASCAR a whole lot too. But NASCAR is no as a series they're they're no stranger to um to doing things like this um you know if you you look back when i was a kid man those those winston cup great moments in winston cup that vhs tape i think i mentioned that before i played that about 500 times when i was little um narrated by ken squire um those kinds of things those ways that you can create a touch point with with a fan base of, of, of different ages, that was the way you did it in the late 80s and the early 90s. The way to do it mm-hmm. now is on streaming video platforms and, and things like Netflix. So I think it's been pretty exciting. Um, Bubba's also one of the most fascinating people in the sport. I've been a, a fan of his for a long time. He's a, he's a consummate professional and super awesome dude. Um, so I look forward to seeing how that, that shakes out. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more of those. 
um, because the success that that F1 one has shown in several years now, I think that's, you know, NASCAR and, and IndyCar and those folks are, are taking notice that, you know, there's a big benefit to having a pre- uh, having a presence on Netflix. And I mean, I got to be honest, wouldn't it be cool to like follow along? At, like, I know that we are in the weeds, uh, so to speak, but in how cool would it be if you could follow along and, and you know, see the the weekly rivalry that, you know, guys have, um, see Denny Hamlin beefing with Brad Keselowski or, you know, Kyle Busch um, beefing with everybody and uh, Kyle Larson getting spun out by his teammate at Road America or, um, you know, Blaney and Brad battling bumper to bumper in New Hampshire. I mean, it'd, just, it'd be cool to see the other sides of that. And I think that's something that NASCAR's brass has noticed. And I think it's probably coming in the very near future. What do you say? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think the interesting part of where we are in NASCAR equaled with technology, I think is is extremely interesting because see, this is the, the cool part about technology, even though a lot of people think I'm, I'm just like an old man who doesn't get it. <laughs> no, I know I do, you get it. You just got to You got to literally get it. Like you got to no, get Netflix. I, I do, you got to get Twitter. I do get it. This is what I'm leading up to here. Okay. The cool, the cool part about it is it seems like te- technology, not only with NASCAR, all technology in lightning speed, we're in an era to where what is cool today has been surpassed in in a matter of months, maybe sure. a year, suddenly everything that was so and cool and on top of its game is just it's obsolete in a year or not even a, not even a year, nine months. Okay. So think fast forward to say twenty twenty four maybe or twenty twenty five what is so on top right now is it's going to be obsolete. So think in those present terms where we're going to be in 2025, who knows? You might, uh, it's, it's, do you follow what I'm saying? It's, yeah. it's going to be it's so interesting. You might be able to, I'm trying to think of a good example. You're, you might be able to ride on the dashboard of, of the car driven by Denny Hamlin to the point of, I mean, you're just so in the car that you more so than you've ever been in the car. That's a bad example. But by then, it's like the technology that we're using today is so obsolete. Think about how far advanced we're going to be in a matter of two to three years. Uh, it's just going to be amazing. So, so I do recognize that. I'm an old guy who is trying to jump on this, this technology train, and I really am trying to do that. But it's just going to be amazing where we're going to be in the next two to three years. And so, yeah, NASCAR is looking into that, and all sports are looking into that. Yeah. And I think about my grandson, who is seven months old. There's no telling by the time he's in college where where all this is going to be. It's just going to be phenomenal where what what our, what opportunities he's going to have technology-wise. Sure. Yeah. So now we can go back in the past again. Let's get back somewhere that we're a little more comfortable. <laughs> okay. um, ben. Oh, please. I, thank you. Yeah. So I okay. watched IROC when I was a kid, the International Race of Champions. Uh, 12 cars, drivers from NASCAR, IndyCar, Formula One, sports cars, sprint cars. Uh, they, they came together and put on an absolute show from the late 70s to the mid-2000s when the series was shut down. Well, now... Um, with, uh, you know, with, with Ray Evernham, NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee as a crew chief and three-time cup champion Tony Stewart, who's also Ben's vote for NASCAR president, 
they came together and they created the Superstar Racing Experience last year. This year, the first season of the Camping World SRX series, as they called it. Uh, it was super awesome, Ben. I wasn't. I was skeptical of it at first. I wasn't sure that it wasn't more than just exhibition racing, and it was a blast when I got into watching it, man. Um, mm-hmm. I talked to Everham today um, about it, and uh, you know, certainly they're very bullish on their prospects for the coming years because it was an extremely successful year for them. You had a great field of people, but it also got me thinking: if I could put together. My dream field, my dream IROC, SRX field, 12 drivers, past, present, whoever, who would it be? And um, so here's who I got. All right, we're going to start with Tim Richmond because it's episode 25 and Tim Rich- Tim Richmond would be an awesome one to have in there. So I go Tim Richmond one, Mario Andretti, Dale Earnhardt Sr., Dale Earnhardt Jr., Fernando Alonso, Marco Andretti, Michael Andretti, Richard Petty, Davey Allison. That's nine, right? I got three more. Uh-huh. Hmm. Who else am I picking here? See, that's tough, man. I didn't get yeah. past nine or ten. AJ Foyt would be ten. Probably Ayrton Senna, eleven. And what the hell? John Force, twelve. Get drag <laughs> racing in there. How about that? Yeah. Well, that's that's some good picks. I mean, I'll be honest with you. That I mean, you, I would have to go with many of, of the ones you've got in there. Sure. I, I would have to add, no doubt, I'd have to add Kale. Kale would be tough. Bobby Allison would be a good I'd one. have to go with Bobby. I'd have David to go Pearson. Pearson. Yeah, I was going to say Pearson. I mean, what about Gordon? Gordon, Ned uh, Jarrett, Dale Jarrett. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you'd have to. Lake Speed, I mean, Jimmy Spencer. <laughs> I mean, there's you could just go right down. I, I tell you where to start. Just go at the top of the win list. It just <laughs> DW. Oh man, we left out DW. Damn. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you gotta get go. we gotta get DW. You have yeah. to have him in there. You gotta have Jaws and his prime in there. Yeah, you got to do that. Uh, I mean, that's what's the, that's what's so cool about it. You got so many good guys. You got to throw Kawiki in there if he could be there. Yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I would really love to see. See, that's the thing. I would love to see some of those guys. And you know, I'm Jimmy Johnson, school. Rick Mears, Kyle Busch. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For me, guys, the, you got to have Donnie Allison in there too. Donnie yeah. would mix it up pretty good. For me personally, I'd have to go back to some of those '70s guys that were at the top of their their game in their prime. Buddy Baker. And, of course yeah you got to have baker in there is that of course you i mean these are fantasy guys because sure. there's no way that they could do that but i mean this would be fun to to see those and it's very much in my opinion like it would be in the irock series yeah but, but the one thing that i noticed when i watched it is i'm certain that the guys ray Evernham and tony said look the you know money's no object go out there and race these guys don't don't make it look like you're gonna oh my gosh i'm gonna you know, scratch paint <laughs> they definitely were not scared to tear up cars no, were they? they weren't they weren't scared to tear up cars and they were they were out there to race and make it they were racers yeah. we want you to go out there and race these guys and race each other sure and if you have to bring back the steering wheel that's fine because what that's what we want you to do this is what it's about to be your best yeah buddy knowing knowing tony and knowing ray that's what they do make 
to be your very best and give it all you have. If you can't give it all you have, all you have, don't do it. Yeah. And so that's that's I enjoyed the series. I thought they did an excellent job, not only building the cars, but giving them competitive cars and putting the best of the best in the cars that that they have. And so I, I just think they it was a good a great series, and I wish them the very best in the years to come with it. I do. Yeah, I'm very excited to see how it shakes out for them and and the, the coming season um, with some of the things that Ray was telling me. But um, you mentioned Donnie Allison, Ben. Friday, I got to talk to Donnie Allison again. Good deal. Donnie, well, he's a great great guy. He is. Donnie and Doug Yates were at Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, with Bobby Allison, and I, Bobby had left by the time I went down to the infield. But they were unveiling um, a number 27 1969 Ford that Donnie had driven in Victory Lane. So. Um, Got to talk to Donnie for a second and had him sign a original 1966 World 600 uh, event brochure that's in oh, mint wow. condition. And we're going to give that away on Charlotte Motor Speedway's Twitter account if we hadn't already. We may have already given it away. Have to check. But that that is uh, in the works if it isn't already. But yeah, just you know, anytime you get a chance to see Donnie Allison, one of the sports luminaries, somebody whose career probably would be very different. If uh, he bounced off of Kelly Yarborough but didn't crash in 1979 Daytona 500, um, but you'll never know. You know, Donnie's uh, still had a lot of success in his career, which was um, ultimately, like many of them, abbreviated due to injury. Uh, but it was really cool to see Donnie Allison. You know, the, yeah. the Alabama gang, uh, that phrase is a very mythical phrase in NASCAR's history, and they're always going to have their, their part in the sport because of it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you couldn't ask for a nicer guy in Donnie and – but Donnie will tell you exactly how it is. Okay, yeah. he he will not sugarcoat his answer, and he will tell you exactly. You know, and I'm gonna tell you this. Maybe I'm gonna I want to maybe rescind um, <laughs> my answer. Uh, let's put it this way: Tony Stewart, v- president of NASCAR, Donnie Allison, maybe vice president. Okay. Or or. I don't know. I think Donnie would be a great president of NASCAR because he's the kind of guy that he would not put up with any BS, and he would just absolutely make a great president of NASCAR, I believe, because he, uh, yeah, Donnie would make a great president. Let me just say that because he would want. He is a fair, down the line guy. Okay, he would want every competitor and every fan, and everybody associated with the sport to have a fair shake. And I believe that with all my heart. I think Donnie would be a great president. As you mentioned him. I I think we both of us can agree on this one concept, very basic. Daryl Walter, press secretary. <laughs> he would oh, be yeah. he'd be perfect yeah. for it. But Ben, would, I think we have yeah. uh we've we've crossed the finish line on episode twenty five. It's been a blast as always chatting up with yes, you. Sir. Can't wait yes, to do sir. it again soon. Um but you guys well, when you get a chance, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. Uh, five stars is always best and different than if we were Uber drivers. Ben probably be a little bit better Uber driver than me because he's got more on-track experience, and <laughs> we both probably uh, sped on the interstate more than we care to admit. So we'll move yes. on and just say we'd love to have your feedback on the podcast, not so much on our driving. Um, <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> but in the meantime, for Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. Thank you guys so much to listening for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. Uh, We'll be back with episode 26, quicker than Brett Bodine crossed the start-finish line in North Wilkesboro in 1990, which I guess really wasn't that quick after all because the little question was where they should have won. But that will be a story that we might catch 
in episode 26. Um, but for now, we appreciate you guys listening, and we'll be back with episode 26 very quickly of a, le- of a lifetime in NASCAR. If I could talk right, Ben, geez, trying to wrap this thing up. I can't get it together today. There you go. That's all right. <laughs> we appreciate you guys listening. We'll be back with episode 26 of a lifetime in NASCAR very soon. But for now, so long, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.